projects in Damariscotta, Maine, 563-5003 or on the web at pinetreeyarns.com. WERU FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and all over the world at WERU.org. A healthy choice. Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from Mabel Wadsworth Center, providing comprehensive sexual and reproductive health services to people in northern and eastern Maine since 1984. Insurance, Maine Care, self-pay accepted, and reduced fees for uninsured clients. MabelWadsworth.org. It's 10 o'clock. Stay tuned for Healthy Options with your host, Rhonda Feynman. Good morning, I'm Rhonda Feynman. Our guest today is Miriam Warman. She is a professor of biology at William Patterson University in New Jersey, where she directs a research laboratory in microbiology to study bacteria on environmental surfaces. An expert in bioethics, Professor Warman has developed and teaches graduate courses in bioethics and research methods. She's a pioneer in biotechnology education and developed and directed one of the first biotechnology programs worldwide. She's also an award-winning science journalist, publishing over 200 articles on topics in science and health, and she is written extensively on biotechnology, genetics, and medical ethics. In addition to all of her credentials, Miriam, Miriam Warman was an instructor at Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York, where she became a member of the in vitro fertilization team that produced the first test tube baby in New York State. She's also with us by phone today to talk with what is likely the most well-known aspect of her work, hand washing. Yes, yes, washing our hands. Yep. Professor Warman's book, The Handbook, Surviving in a Germ-Filled World, makes a strong case for hand-washing in order to reduce the risk of infectious disease. The Handbook presents the history, religious, and cultural roots of hand-washington. I don't know. Maybe in Washington we need more hand-washing. I don't know what that was about. How scientists (laughs) discovered that germs cause disease, the science behind hand hygiene, and the shocking truth that many people, including healthcare workers, do not wash properly. Professor Warman offers tips to improve hygiene to stay healthier at home and at work and at school, and most importantly, in healthcare facilities where poor hygiene can be deadly. So, welcome to Healthy Options, Professor Miriam Warman. Good morning, Rhonda. Thank you so much for inviting me to join you. Absolutely. I'm so glad you're here. So, Microbes are, are they every year? What? 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 Tell us what, where, where, yes, when, yes, what? Yes. What's a germ? What's a microbe? Okay. Well, we live in a in a world in a universe that's full of microscopic organisms, microbes or germs, and uh, they are um, on us and in us and around us, and most of the time they're okay. They're not harmful. And so we really carry with us on our bodies about four pounds of microbes, many, many cells that reside on our skin, inside our gut, and uh, mostly they are there to keep us uh, healthy, and mostly they are there in a cooperative way, Um, and, um, and they don't pose a risk. But there are some microbes that we need to be wary of and we and can and can put us at a high risk for disease, and those are the ones we need to be aware of, and those are the ones we need to be careful about. So what, um, well, we, you're talking about these beneficial microbes on our hands. Now, we talk about having a good immune system. Now, shouldn't that be uh, sufficient to keep us healthy? Yes, for the most part, that's how we survive. We do have um, an immune system that is able to counter and uh, work against those microbes that could uh, pose a risk to us. Um, and for uh, healthy uh, and uh, hardy people, uh, that's mostly uh, how we stay healthy. However, uh, there are times when we have um, some compromise to the immune system, in particular in the very young uh, and in the very old and in people who are, um, are sick or they're suffering from various diseases. Uh, their immune system might be compromised. 
And in those cases, you have to be particularly vigilant about what you're exposed to because the immune system is not perfect. We have other barriers also. Our skin is a wonderful barrier. Uh, when you get a wound, that's when you have to be concerned that germs can get into the wound and infiltrate your body and make you ill. Um, but we do have those primary barriers that keep us healthy, and that's why for uh, thousands, really hundreds of thousands of years, humanity has been able to survive without modern medicine. Now, survival without modern medicine also meant uh, an average life expectancy of about 40 or in the 40s. Now, with modern medicine, and in, in particular, hygiene is one of the big advances, the average life expectancy is about 80. So I think that that's a worthwhile investment. It's certainly worthwhile to know uh, what are the, the uh, modern approaches to hygiene, which include uh, hand washing. So tell us, is there a proper way to wash your hands? Let's just start right off, and, and why would that be a good thing to do? Um, the most effective way to wash your hands is the most simple, and that is uh, at a sink with warm water and just regular soap. And uh, because even though the soap isn't the so-called antibacterial soap, soap has the property that it makes your hands slippery and it also repels germs. So when you soap up and you lather up, the germs that are adhering and sticking to your hands become slippery and then they slide off and they go down the drain with the water. So that has shown to be the most effective approach. We don't need those antibacterials in the soap because you don't have to kill the germs that you are getting rid of. Those antibacterials, those chemicals have shown to have some side effects and to also have some risks associated with them. So they are being banned. They're being removed from products. Uh, so regular old soap and water is the best. You don't always have access to that, so that's why hand sanitizers have been developed. And those work well also. They're based on, uh, with alcohol, alcohol-based hand sanitizers, and they kill lots of germs, and they can keep you healthy when you don't have access to soap and water. So uh, did I read in your book about 62% of alcohol? Is that correct, or was there a percentage? Yes, the, m most of the hand sanitizers have 60 to 70%. Um, alcohol concentrations, and those are very effective. Um, those are the ones that are recommended. So Purell is just one example of one uh, brand, um, but they're more or less, uh, you know, the same, uh, and um, they're convenient, and they are useful when you don't have access to soap and water. No, uh, I... Again, the hand washing itself is probably the best approach if you can. So um, first off, uh... You know, none of us are, are getting a kickback from Perel if we say that name here, by the way. <laughs> you, <laughs> I don't assume you are, uh, Dr. No, Lord. no, no. And I call it usually, I mean, in my book, I call them alcohol-based hand sanitizer. There you go. Because there are a number of different um, of you know, companies that make it now. And it's not uh, anything, it's not particularly expensive, and it's not something fancy or complicated but it's very effective. And they're using it now, I think most importantly in terms of hand hygiene, the issues that have to do with health care are the most compelling and the most important because people who are in the hospital or if they're in other health care facilities, they are going to be exposed to some germs that are truly life-threatening and that might be um, antibiotic-resistant. And the people who are in such facilities are generally um, vulnerable. Uh, you know, they're either ill or they're elderly. And so uh, that's when the hand washing becomes really critical. And you would hope that everybody involved in that health care is going to be scrupulously um, watching that they do what they should do. But they don't necessarily do what they should do. And health care workers... Um, frequently fail to wash the hands, and well, that's when we have real health problems. Well, that, that is kind of shocking. I want to just clarify one thing as we're discussing the, um, the idea of, of soap and water. Do germs, do these microbes that we're discussing live on bar soap? Oh, that's a very good question. Yeah, there are a lot of people who still use bar soap, and you do encounter bar soap in, in some um, environments. Uh, yes, they can live on bar soap. 
And if you use bar soap, it's probably best to have your own dedicated bar if you can. If you share it within your family, uh, a lot of people do that. But if somebody is sick, you probably want to make sure that person is using a different piece of bar soap. Um, and if you're out in a public place, I would say if you can, try to avoid the bar soap because it can carry germs. It can uh, be a reservoir of germs. So uh, liquid soap is, of course, uh, more available, and that's um, probably the best choice in a public place. So the harshness of some of these soaps, you know, in terms of drying hands and that kind of thing, when you have very dry skin, is that actually create opening up a bar- uh, your barrier? Is that becoming a, a problem for some people? Is that a, an issue? That, that's a very good point. Um, there are people who have more delicate skin, and so um, even a moderate amount of hand washing could cause some cracking and drying of the skin. Um, but what, what I'm recommending and what people uh, promote with regard to hand washing is not to be overzealous and not to be always washing your hands, but to be washing your hands appropriately. And that means, I mean, I don't even carry uh, the alcohol-based hand sanitizer in my purse. But what I do is I try to be germ aware. So if I'm out and about and touching public surfaces and so on, then I just kind of keep it in mind that I need to wash my hands before I eat. I need to wash my hands before I touch my eyes or my nose or my mouth. And if I can keep that in mind, then I reduce my risk. And that means that I will wash at an appropriate time before I um, have a snack or a meal. And that means I'm not overwashing. Uh, so it is important to keep it, um, uh, you know, in a sensible approach to hand washing, not to be obsessed with it. Um, and I think that's a good, healthy approach. Well, and all the people we were, I was discussing this uh, upcoming show with, um, people were uh, talking about how if they could, saying if they saw all the, all the surfaces and all the germs that were on it, they would probably be totally freaked out and not be able to like, whirl, move in the world. How, how do we, uh, you know, you did those great studies with your students and other people have done those studies where you go out to uh, collect uh, germs from uh, the subway in New York and all of these things. What Maybe you could share some of that for my people who are sitting here with their hands very much clenched in front of them. It's- <laughs> and, and clenching is a good way to stay safe. Yes. Ah, clench you your hands anything, at all times. That- that's one, that's one approach to the world, but that's not my approach to the world. We actually did do a study at William Patterson University. I collaborate with a public health professor, Professor Corey Bash, and we sent out students to, um, uh, to food vendors, street vendors in New York. Okay, so you can imagine there are a lot of people who are going to be um, touching those surfaces, and the people who, the food handlers who... Um, serve you at public food vendors on the streets of New York, they do have, and they're supposed to be following health codes with regard to donning gloves, putting on gloves, and changing their gloves. So we observed them for hundreds of transactions, and we found out that they only comply with the health code about uh, 2% of the time. So about 98% of the time, they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. And that makes you feel like you never want to eat at a mobile food vendor ever again. Um, But obviously people do. So uh, there are some things you can do to protect yourself. And one is to be, um, you know, an educated consumer and to watch the food vendor for a few minutes to see if it looks like a particularly risky, um, uh, you know, um, establishment. Do you really want to eat there? You can just walk away and not eat there if you feel that they're not going to be giving you food that's that's healthy. Um, restaurants are better because they have a sink and they have water, but these street vendors, they don't have access to running water, so they really should be doing uh, the proper thing with gloves. We discovered that a lot of these vendors will handle money. Yes. Money is very contaminated with germs because a lot of people handle it. We tested it in the lab, and we um, showed that, that there is a lot of contamination on, uh, on dollar bills. 
Um, so they handle money and then they touch your food. And then you know that there is a risk that you're going to be exposed to something that could make you sick. So you need to be a wise consumer. And, um, and, and you don't want to go around cringing all the time. Uh, one of the things that I struggle with sometimes is handshakes. Oh, and yes. I always shake people's hands. But then I um, keep in mind, again, being germ aware, that I've been shaking hands and I know that I need to wash my hands before I have a snack or, or sit down to a meal. So that's being germ aware. And that's really what I recommend. No, okay, two things. Uh, for people who just tuned in, uh, this is Healthy Options on WERU Community Radio. I'm your host, Rhonda Feynman. We're speaking today with Professor Miriam Worman about one of the most important things, apparently, that we can do for our health, and that is to wash our hands. She's author of an in-depth book on the subject, The Handbook, Surviving in a Germ-Filled World. And, and Miriam, um, if you are on speaker, uh, there's some feedback happening. I, if you're on a speakerphone, if you could pick up the receiver, that might be help, more helpful if that works. I am for... actually talking into the receiver. Okay. Maybe a little, maybe a little I... bit farther away from the receiver then because that's so interesting how it's... How it's, uh... Okay, I'm going to just switch receivers for a second. Okay, we'll have a moment while Hello. we... Hello? Hi. Yes, hi. Is okay. that better? Yeah, it is. Okay. Well, okay, we'll good. see if it is, but we'll talk. Thank you. But we'll... Um, so this whole this whole idea about about the the food I uh I remember being uh, at a uh at some grocery store I was buying some fish and the uh server was very very diligent put on the gloves you know served the fish and then with those gloves closed the door closed the freezer door or the refrigerated door of the uh of the unit and I said you know you just contaminated that door. And he kind of looked at me. And I will say, I go back to that place regularly, and now I'm just so pleased. Everybody's whipping their gloves off as professionals, rolling them into each other, using alcohol swabs. I'm, I'm, I'm just so gratified that all of this, uh, you know, cross-contamination has been averted, you know, in, uh, in our local co-op here and uh, <laughs> all, over, all over Maine. So... So it can happen. So we have to create a different culture, don't we, about how to be aware of these things? Yes, that, that's that's um, a very good story. Yeah. You really have um, helped people by educating them. And that's one of the things that we can do as wise consumers is we can uh, encourage people to do the right thing. And gloves are misused so often. It's really a difficult issue. Uh, because putting on gloves will protect the person who has the gloves, but the minute they start touching things, they can transfer germs from surface to surface very easily with the gloves. So, so in terms of hand of uh, of shaking hands, now if you're doing multiple handshakes, aren't people transferring? You know, you could be perfectly healthy, but. You're just, you know, shook hands with someone who did not wash their hands and has E. coli or something, and then you're you're shaking the next person's hands. Is this, you know, uh, am I getting uh, too OCD about this or, uh, or what? what no, you're absolutely correct, and that's the problem with handshaking is it does transfer germs from person to person. Um, so there are people who are germaphobes who refuse to shake hands, and there are cultures where handshaking is not as important in our society and our communities handshaking is still very important in terms of um in in terms of uh, interacting with people making the deal you know um, in business very important so we're not going to get rid of handshakes anytime soon i don't think yeah i would like to see handshakes banned in healthcare facilities I don't think that's happened yet across the board, but I think that medical personnel are more aware of that, and they do try to reduce that type of contamination. So, uh, I'm, for instance, the work I do, I'm a Japanese-style acupuncturist. I've been to Japan. Everybody is bowing. It's very pleasant. No one's shaking hands unless they say, oh, you're, a, you're a, a Westerner. I'm going to shake hands to make you feel more comfortable. And I'm like, no, no, let's bow. This is nice. Um, uh-huh. And then you recommend the fist bump. I like that. Very cultural. 
culturally, uh, we can adapt that. You know, you meet your new doctor and you do a fist bump. What do you think? Well, uh, when I meet my doctor, I don't touch their hands if, if because, um, you know, I just know that it's not an appropriate thing with healthcare workers. But fist bumps have caught on among some groups, and I think that we're more likely to accept that as a replacement for handshakes, just in terms of our own society and culture. Um, and it would be nice if we could move on to the bow and smile because I think that's a friendly way to interact. It is. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. You know, I think that can work. But that, that would require really quite a sea change in our society. It, it certainly would. It certainly would. You spend um, a, a good amount of time talking, as, as rightly, I think, uh, with the idea, you know, in, in different countries, in different cultures, uh, water and soap is a luxury. We don't have, it's not uh, readily available. It's not, it's not uh, an, an, an necessarily an accessible thing. And I, I thought it was fascinating that you were talking about other methods that, uh, that people are using um, mud and and what about friction and and that kind of thing maybe you could talk a little about about your research and what you've learned about that kind of thing uh well friction is part of the process of getting rid of germs from your hands so when you wash with soap and water of course they will slide down the drain you'll be removing the germs but then the drying part is also controversial the um hair the blowers the hand blowers that we find in public restrooms are problematic because they broadcast the germs into the air and you could be breathing them in, not only from your own hands, but from people who used them previously. And studies have shown that these hand blowers have a lot of germs on them. But in terms of friction, when you dry your hands with paper towels, that type of friction also helps to remove residual germs. And, you know, that was kind of interesting when I looked into how people are sanitizing their hands all over the world, that there are people for whom uh, rubbing with sand is the best approach because that's all they have available. There are studies about uh, um, societies and cultures where they don't have access to soap, but even rinsing the hand reduces the germ load significantly and helps to keep them healthier. So there are other approaches. They're not as effective as soap and water, but they do help some people stay healthier. And in, in certainly in, in cooking, and, and, you know, Miriam, I think I might ask you to go back to the other handset. I think it was actually a, a little better, or maybe keep it I'm a gonna, little bit further away from your, or, or closer. I'm not yeah. sure. We're going to figure okay, this I'm out. Okay, I'm going to try. Yes, thank you. Um, okay, well, we'll try it. this one. Are we still there? Yeah, oh, yeah, we're good. Um, okay, but uh, there was an idea of cooking, you know, uh, women, you, in, in, I think it was somewhere in Africa, the idea that in order to get water, one had to, you know, walk and carry the water back. It was very, very difficult. But finding that even washing one hand or something like that even reduced the risk of, uh, of cross-contamination, I thought that was, that was so interesting and see how resilient we as human beings really can be. It's not the most ideal, but one can do things in, in all different kinds of circumstances. Yes, absolutely. That's right. Mm-hmm. Were you part, you weren't, you just, this was just research that was, uh, that's just out in the world. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's one study that shows that rinsing does have an effectiveness. Yeah. Um, but there were other studies one done in London that showed, uh, compared washing with soap and water versus rinsing. And uh, the rinsing reduced the germ load by about 50%. Wow. Uh, with soap and water, it reduces about 90, about 90%. Yeah. Well, let's just take a moment and think about that, how fortunate mm-hmm. we, we many of us are. To be able to do that. Now, I, again, always, I've heard from people, well, I, you know, we are, we're too sterile. We need to play in the dirt. We, our kids are, are, are not 
being exposed enough. We're being, you know, too too overprotective. We we should play in the dirt. We should even eat the dirt. We should uh, expose ourselves to, uh, you know, people who grow up on farms. Uh, ha- do they really have? Um, we have a lot of farms in in our neck of the woods here. Are they really stronger? Do they really because they're exposed to more microbes and more animals? Uh, households with dogs or cats. What 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 do we know about those kinds of exposures? Yes, that's correct. They say that when uh, children grow up in a household with a pet, their immune system is stronger. They've been exposed to different kinds of germs. Um, and um, playing in the dirt is fine. But when you come in after playing in the backyard, you should wash your hands with soap before you eat. Because there are germs in the soil that can be harmful. Uh, even anthrax lives in the soil. Oh, right. So you want to be vigilant about that as well. But no matter how much you wash your hands, you're not going to be in a sterile environment. We're not sterilizing everything. So we're still allowing our immune system to be exposed to some germs. The key is you want to avoid those that can make you really sick and can pose a big risk to you. And by washing your hands wisely, that can help you stay healthier. So in your book, you have fantastic handy lists of the most important times to wash your hands with soap and water, you know, for kids, after the bathroom, with a pet, uh, sneezing or blowing your nose, you know, for teens and adults, all of the above, with uh, applying makeup, using a tampon, gardening, you know, after sexual activity, changing a diaper before preparing food, uh, feeding a child or an infirm adult, um, Yes, working out in the gym, right? Those are important things. And uh, maybe we don't think about that. So, you know, doing that that kind of little dance at a public restroom or something, you know, using a paper towel to open the door or to close the uh, the um, faucet, those kinds of things are, are really important, aren't they? Yes, there are specific times where you could be exposed to germs um, that are uh, of concern or of greater concern. And a lot of it has to do with common sense. Obviously, if you're changing a diaper, you want to go wash your hands with soap after that. Well, uh, be- certainly before you feed your child. Yeah, but uh, you would be surprised. I, I was actually uh, at an, uh, an event, and somebody sadly was became ill and we were helping helping her in the bathroom and one of the things that was noticed while we were helping our friend is that there were so many people who came in used the bathroom and didn't use didn't wash their hands afterwards and what do we say that men are are worse as a, a culturally and women are better but not perfect. So I, we, I have to say it was a little shocking. Of course, we were focusing on, on helping our, our friend who had a virus. But, um, <laughs> but um, it was like, oh, did you notice all those people who walked out of the bathroom without washing their hands? <laughs> there are a lot of people who know what they should be doing, but they don't actually do it. <laughs> and there are intelligent, educated people who fail to wash Uh, And that's why even if you're a good hand washer, you're still at risk because other people aren't doing what you think they are doing. And hand washing is still the first line of defense, and it helps to keep us healthy. So, um, yeah, it it is pretty shocking to see that people who you think should know better aren't doing what they should be doing. So let's turn again, and I, a lot of the book is, and you mentioned about healthcare facilities and healthcare professionals. So we're wanting to, uh, you know, prohibit handshakes. But um, I was uh, not surprised, but it was uh, quite alarming to find out that many, many uh, doctors and in, uh, in, in the healthcare se- setting are not washing their hands. That some clothing ties and and buckles and the the actual and rings oh tell us the story about the surgery and the rings and and telephone you know all of those kinds of things are not being followed as uh you know good hand hand sanitation uh procedures but well first i'll preface this by saying that in the past 10 years 
the situation has gotten much, much better, and healthcare workers are much more aware, and healthcare facilities are implementing training and better programs to ensure that people are complying. So it's getting better. But there is a story of a surgeon who wore rings under his gloves, and even though he scrubbed and donned his gloves, uh, they discovered that there was a serious contamination. They traced it back to this one particular surgeon and his rings, and the rings were stuck. You know, sometimes there are people who don't actually take off their wedding band because it's become stuck. Um, and they made him remove the rings, and he had to have it cut off or something. And he had to um, demonstrate over a period of time that his hands were not contaminated, and then he was permitted to go back to operating. Wow. Um, so you, there are some practices that seem to be appropriate but are still not safe enough uh, in, in the performance of health care duties but we're learning how to do it better. So that's the good news. Uh, very sadly, uh, I mean, one of the reasons that I wrote this book was that my mother passed away from a hospital-acquired infection. Right. And that was really tragic. I'm and so, so sorry. And so this happens, and there are tens of thousands of people who, who die from hospital-acquired infections. Right. Well, I do know, again, another, I'm so sorry about your mom and, and, uh, we did have a family member with MRSA and was in a uh, the hospital, had to have surgery uh, because it actually had um, infected and then gotten into certain bones. And I was shocked. We were all having gowns and washing hands and putting gloves on. And some of the physicians coming in were half, the gown was half on and half off. Maybe the glove was on, maybe it wasn't. It was quite shocking. And you mentioned ties um, and uh, how they're not laundered. So the tie can be a uh, conduit for... Uh, so that doctor came in and looked at our family member and examined him and then went on to the next patient. I was... Yeah, that... It was a bit that, shocking. That's pretty shocking. It was. And that is the state of medicine in a lot of places. Uh, the necktie should be banned from healthcare facilities because it's a piece of clothing that isn't washed and um, if you ask men in general when was the last time you washed their tie nobody washes their ties <laughs> and occasionally you might take it to the dry cleaner but that's if you have a very expensive tie and that you would be motivated to have it clean because it got a spot on it but ties are not washed and so when you do go from patient to patient you are transmitting germs from patient to patient on surfaces. We do a lot of research in my lab about um, uh, fabrics and how fabrics uh, do um, transfer germs from one surface to another. So that's a real thing, and it really does put us at risk. So I'm, I'm just going to do a little more business here to say if people are just tuning in, I'm Rhonda Feynman. You're tuned to WERU Community Radio. This is the Healthy Options Program. Our guest today is, is Dr. Miriam Warman, professor of biology at William Patterson University of New Jersey and author of the book, The Handbook, Surviving in a Germ-Filled World. Let's go back to the fabric. There are different fabrics that will... Um, will repel germs more or hold germs more? What, what have we learned in your research? One of the things that we did discover, and we're still working on this, is that um, one kind of fabric called microfiber tends to repel water, but it also tends to repel germs. So it could be a very useful fabric in the healthcare industry, and that's something we're exploring and we're looking at right now in the lab. So not but generally, the regular fabrics that we wear, as long as we launder them and we're germ aware, it shouldn't pose that much of a risk. If you're working in a healthcare facility and you're wearing a lab coat or scrubs, you need to be aware that you might be carrying germs from one room to another and cover yourself and protect yourself and protect your patients. So um, and then when you go home, you shouldn't wear your scrubs home because you're going to bring all those germs home to your family. So, that, again, germ-aware, I think, is the key. That's the best approach. 
so what we're knowing now is um, <clears throat> is that that really simple things can really help us. We know that some germs, when we're being exposed to things from uh, all over the world now, you know, train, uh, plane travel and, and that kind of thing. So would you say when you're, uh, we grow up somewhere, right? We're born, we live in an area that has its own bio, biological flora, fauna, and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Would you say we become mm-hmm. attuned to that? How does that work in terms of being where, you know, do we do better at home and then we start traveling. Um, I, I remember moving to different states and I, the first thing I did was get a cold or something, not because of the stress of moving, but I thought, well, I have never lived, been around a Santa Fe flu germ before. I don't know. Is it different or do you have different microbes or different immune responses based on where you are or what you're kind of were born into? Uh, absolutely. Your immune system has been stimulated as you're growing up by your local flora, which is the, which are the germs. And so the immune system can wage a very good war if you're challenged by those germs. And travelers are more vulnerable to microbes from different environments. So these new or novel germs could escape the immune system surveillance. And that's why we may be more uh, prone to getting sick when we're traveling. So when you are going to travel, there are a lot of different tips that you can uh, follow to to stay healthier. But one of the things to do, of course, is to find out if the region has extraordinary risks for any infectious diseases. And you can do that by looking at the Center for Disease Control website, the CDC website, and it will tell you if you need special vaccines and so on. But most people don't travel to those exotic places. They travel to, you know, um, let's say Europe and so on. Uh, but you are being exposed to germs that your immune system may not have been challenged with before. So there are a whole bunch of things you can do to reduce your risk. For instance, stay in reputable hotels if uh, hopefully you can afford. And uh, be aware when you're on an airplane, which is a public area, that people who have been there before have contaminated the surfaces. And the airplanes are not well sanitized. So you might want to bring along a little hand sanitizer and wipe down the tray table and the armrests because people have been touching them. I've heard of uh, mothers changing their babies on the tray table. I mean, there are all sorts of stories. And okay. hotel rooms also have hot spots with lots of germs. Oh, yeah. So you don't know who've been, who has been there, and people from other countries are carrying a whole new set of germs. That could very well make you sick. I, I, I think from the next town over. There, that's it. The next town over, they're all right. They're <laughs> those people in Manhattan. Get them out of Teaneck, right? right? Well, well, in, in Maine, the town could be many miles away. So that's right. We have a whole new ecosystem be, right up true. the coast. There you go. So you're mentioning wearing socks if you're required to take your shoes off. Well, I want to go one step further, Miriam, because yes. then you've had those socks on. God, who knows what? So mm-hmm. change your socks. Bring an extra pair of socks. or Absolutely. Absolutely. There you go. When you're traveling, you should have your airport socks and just use them for the airport. And when you get to your destination, take those socks off, put them in a plastic bag, and then get them into the laundry. <laughs> I'll go, go through TSA, take the socks off, and then, okay, all right. So we can get, we, you see, there are just all these levels of, uh, of contamination, really. So, uh, oh, yes, yes. Definitely, (laughs) and it's all part of your book here, which is the um, the handbook surviving in a germ filled world, where you have all these great lists and 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 such. Um, I love the idea of the yuck factor. Let's talk about the yuck factor, because I will tell you, since I've been sitting here, I'm watching the engineer in the booth across the way. He has been taking out a sani wipe, and he's been washing. uh, He's been wiping down the the control boards. He's been using the (laughs) headphones. I'm telling you, we, are, we have a whole new culture here at WERU. And if you're at home, I know that you're now getting the counters all clean, you're washing your hands, you're changing the towels. Yep. Yes, towels, very important in a home. It's very important. We can get back to that. Uh, but the yuck factor is one solution to help us to be better at 
at keeping our hands clean. And uh, it's that feeling of disgust with um, dirt and, and germs. And that sense of disgust helps us to stay healthy. So we avoid bodily wastes and spoiled food and blood and gore because we find them to be yucky. They're distasteful. Um, and by the way, that's for, um, uh, for the most part, that's learned because a two-year-old is very happy to play with their bodily waste. So you have <laughs> to tell right. them, don't touch that. It's yucky. And, you know, and, and, and uh, that way they begin to understand that that's not something that they want to um, interact with. Um, so the yuck factor helps to influence our behavior and encourages more healthful um, choices. In fact, the, the feeling of disgust was used to discourage smoking. And there are these TV ads and other types of magazine ads that show pictures of the disfiguring disease. Right. Uh, also on cigarette packs, there was a, a time when they were showing uh, very um, disgusting pictures to lower the demand for cigarettes. So this sense of disgust really does work, and it does help us to stay healthier. And, um, and you know, even the facial expressions we use and the words such as yuck and phew and ick, uh, those are things that help uh, distance us from the things we shouldn't be touching, and that way we stay healthier. Yeah, there's a lot of yuck factor going on around here right now. I just have to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> How's that on your end, really? <laughs> tell us about uh, tell us about uh, uh, towels and such. What? Uh, well, everyone should have yeah. their own towel. But what about using your face towel? Should one have a separate towel for that? And what do you think? Well, yeah, I want to talk about. Um, practices that families can do at home that can uh, keep the children and the family healthier. And if there is somebody in the family who gets the flu, uh, my little grandson right now oh, no. is reported to have a fever and he's, you know, and they, and he has four siblings. So once it comes into the house, you know, it's got to spread, right? Yeah. So hand washing is of course still the number one um, defense, uh, right? The first barrier but also anything that the child is touching. So you don't want the other children to be sharing a towel. You don't want the other children to be sharing utensils or glasses, uh, you know, cups. Um, and if you can keep that child somewhat isolated, that's also a very good thing because otherwise it's going to spread through the household and everybody's going to get it. Um. Um, there are lots of times, and I've seen this so many times, when you have a communal towel, and everybody washes their hands, but then they dry it with a towel. And hand washing isn't perfect, so everybody's touching the same towel. And the towel is moist. And boy, that's a great reservoir for germs. So what you want to do is to have dedicated towels, especially if somebody's sick and they shouldn't be sharing. Um, and, and that's just uh, one approach to helping the family within the home to keep things from spreading from one person to another so, so how old is your grandson oh he's five okay yeah, he's a cutie yeah <laughs> poor poor guy so you know i mean you're isolating but you know you're gonna his, his mom and dad are gonna be holding him they're gonna tell mm -hmm. him how oh we're so sorry you don't feel well you know he's gonna be you know breathing all over them you know etc <laughs> Right. So mom and dad then have to kind of go strip their clothes before they go talk to the other kids. <laughs> Does well, that that's really where the happen? Immune system comes in. So, okay. and, you know, they say moms never get sick. Well, I beg to differ. I beg to differ. Because too. <laughs> my daughter has had her share of colds and blues from the children. And uh, she has five children, ages nine, seven, five, three, and one month. Oh, my so goodness. She's got her hands full. And, uh, yes, it, it's, it's really a challenge to keep people healthy in, in that kind of close environment. So uh, she's got to take care of the child, and she's going to be exposed to it, and hopefully she won't catch it, and hopefully the others won't also. Uh, but she's pretty experienced at this, at this point. So, right. um, you know, I'm hoping for the best here. <laughs> Good. And she read my book. So, oh. okay, she's, got, she's well armed because she, she read my book. Well, but it sounds like this is a generational uh, understanding from your dad, from what you, you talk about. Your dad was ahead of his time, 
in terms of hand hygiene, wasn't he? <laughs> yes, exactly. He inspired me in so many ways. And certainly he was very aware and uh, he was a very experienced person. He was out in the community as a, as a rabbi and he shook a lot of hands. I would think. But he was also aware of those risks. He was um, also a chaplain in a hospital, and he would come home from the hospital and change out of that hospital, a specific suit that he would wear in the hospital, and put it away somewhere. Uh, so it, he really was ahead of his time, and, um, and, and that, he was one of the inspirations for me to write the book. Fantastic. That's, 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 that's good. That's, that's great, um, great inspiration. So even with even with um policy changes it really is a cultural thing cuz again I've had people tell me oh I don't really believe in the germ theory or I'm not worried about that. I never get sick. And I said to them, well, you're probably like ground zero for infecting everybody else then. <laughs> what do you you know, how do we how do we fight those kinds of um of, of attitudes? Uh, well, there uh, certainly is some value for emphasizing that the science is there and the research has just over and over again over the years shown that this is how, uh, how it works, that diseases are caused by germs and germs are easy to transfer from person to person, from surface to surface. And that's how diseases, infectious diseases, spread. So it's important to educate first yourself, and then you can educate others and make them aware. And it's important to learn the science because it's very convincing. So my book, The Handbook, um, is for a general audience. It's easy to understand. It, pre it presents the issues and it, the problems and many, many solutions about how to stay healthier. But there's also science, and I do explore the scientific studies that help to convince people, even those who are doubting or are skeptical. Um, you can just look at what some of the studies show, and uh, you can be more convinced and, um, and be able to accept it better. Um, right. So, you know, that's, that's a big part of it, is education. And that's a big part of a solution for helping us to be better at it. And that is to educate at all levels with the tiniest little children, you know, at the very beginning, some of the first things that you teach them when they learn how to use the potty is then they go wash their hands. And it's part of the routine. And they, you know, they climb up on the stool and they wash their hands and they dry them and so on. Well, and then when you have grade school children, you have to continue to, to reinforce it. And they found that high school children and college students they begin to drift away because mom's not watching, dad's not watching anymore. So you have to continue to reinforce it. Uh, so education throughout our lives, and of course adults, uh, some of whom are skeptical, they need to hear these lessons again and again. Well, and when you tell them about stories of people who get really ill because of some um, type of um, you know uh, uh, misuse of uh, of materials or, or touching or transmission, uh, then those types of lessons, uh, they're serious lessons and they're serious consequences that can wake people up and make them uh, be more accepting. Right. But, you know, we're, we have uh, eradicated in, in, or many, the high percentage of so many infectious diseases in our culture that people have never seen it. Although now we're seeing, you know, measles, I happen to know, right? There's a whole epidemic in, uh, or would that be the right word? Um, yeah. In, um, yeah. in, in up, up in upstate New York and in, in Britain, um, different communities have, uh, have, uh, are having um, quite uh, an outbreak now of very, very serious infestation of, of measles. And I was just reading something like measles can live for two hours on a surface, and if someone coughs or just breathe, it's it's just there. It's not what we might think of. Oh, somebody sneezed; it'll dissipate. You know, this this is ninety percent of people exposed to uh, measles can get it if you're yeah yeah. 
So yes, it's it's incredibly infectious, very contagious, and again, we have to get back to the idea of educating people, right? And um, asking them to look at and learn the science, because the science is very convincing. Yeah. Vaccinations work, and the reason that people are becoming skeptical is because they haven't had the experience of of individuals around them, loved ones, getting these diseases because they were eradicated. They were eradicated by successful vaccination programs. But if you don't have that experience of your friend when you're a child getting so sick and then, God forbid, but this happened, passed away, you know, some of the, a lot of these children who get sick with measles are really at high risk yeah. of death. Uh, the consequences are so serious, um, and so you need to continue to educate people about the effectiveness of vaccines and that they truly save lives, and we're really at risk if people reject the science. Um, and so, you know, that's it, education um, at all levels. I'm not talking about classroom. I'm talking about exposing people to the ideas and to the um, benefit of science and the benefit of our modern understanding of health in order to stay healthier. Well, we'll just keep washing our hands around here. I just want to <laughs> tell people who have just tuned in, you're listening to the Healthy Options Program on WERU Community Radio. I'm Rhonda Feynman. We're speaking with Professor Miriam Worman of William Patterson University, where she teaches biology and directs a research laboratory in microbiology to study bacteria on environmental services. She's the author of the handbook, Surviving in a Germ-Filled World. And yes, we are discussing the importance of washing our hands. Yes, we are doing that. And we have been for the last uh, 45 minutes, 50 minutes. And we will continue for the next five five minutes or so. Um, so the ramifications of people not doing that, we, we know, is the spread of, uh, of infectious diseases. But we're also, I do want to just reiterate that um, there are a few things that happen really right at the beginning of our lives that can help us with good immunity. And you were just talking about reducing cesarean sections, using right less antibiotic-resistant products and using antibiotics more sparingly. Uh, vaginal births. Tell us, you know, what we know that that happens that can help our immune system right from the get-go. Yes, the studies do say they re they reinforce the idea that uh, children born vaginally, their immune systems uh, have been stimulated in a unique way as they pass through the birth canal. Now, the one thing you can't do is go back and choose the way you were born. <laughs> so. If you were born by cesarean, you can't. You don't have a redo on that one. Um, but there are um, uh, now uh, some movements to try to reduce the frequency of cesareans. Uh, we have a very high rate of cesareans in our country. Uh, a lot of it has to do with the practice of medicine in that you don't want to have, have any risks at all to the mother and baby. Right. So um, it's more likely that doctors will ask, you know, will insist on a cesarean if there is any type of, of distress to the, um, to the fetus and to the newborn um, and to the mother. So there is a very high incidence of cesareans in our country, and there are uh, certainly some movements to reduce that, to approach the, um, uh, the birth process in a more natural way. And, you know, a lot of people are, are trying um, to, um, uh, you know, they're hoping for a natural birth. I was very, very lucky. I was very fortunate. I have two daughters, and both were um, natural childbirth. Oh, great. No anesthesia. Yep. Uh, back in the 80s when that was a thing that people were uh, really striving to have the most natural type of experience. And now uh, it's much more rare for women to avoid anesthesia totally. Yeah. Um, and uh, some of the anesthesia does lead to a higher risk that cesarean will be uh, necessary. Why is that? So it's, again, it's important to be educated about it, about what are the implications of various choices. Um, and the, the most important thing is the outcome, that it should be a healthy birth with a healthy 
child and the mother should, you know, be strong and healthy as well. Mm. Well, we're very fortunate here in Maine. We have many nurse midwives. We have uh, lay midwives. We have uh, a lot of integration of that kind of home births and natural births that are quite successful with the understanding if there's a complication that there's backup um, if needed. Um, and it's, uh, it's just a very lovely thing for families to be able to experience that. And, um, and even if you are in a hospital, they're having more birthing centers or birth with ways where it's less of a hospital environment uh, than it used to be. So those kinds of things, I, I think, are, are very positive. Yes, I think we're going in the right direction in that respect, definitely. <laughs> right. Um, uh, this just, uh, just uh, one thing I did mean to ask, uh, this whole, there's an idea about sanitizing hands with ultraviolet light. What do you know about that, or is that, are door surfaces with ultraviolet, is that something that's, that you're researching or is being researched? Do we know anything yes, about you that? Can, you can sanitize surfaces with ultraviolet light, and that does work. That has some uh, effectiveness. Uh, and in fact, ultraviolet light is used to, to sterilize some of the materials that are used in the hospital and uh, equipment used in the hospital. You never want to sanitize your skin with ultraviolet light okay. because ultraviolet light causes cancer. There's a direct link between exposure to ultraviolet light and cancer. That's why we wear sunscreen when we go out. Um, on a sunny day, we go to the beach or we go to a pool, we put on sunscreen that blocks the ultraviolet rays. Mm -hmm. Now, there is something that's happening with regard to fingernails, right? The yeah. fingernail polish oh, yeah. uh, that need, needs exposure to ultraviolet light oh, to, right. Um, right, to set the polish. Oh, uh, Those are the acrylics. Yes. Um, people who are using that, this is a whole other question that has nothing to do with sanitation, but they use that and they expose their fingernails to ultraviolet light are also exposing the skin of their fingers and sometimes their hands. And that can increase your risk for skin cancer. Um, it's not talked about a lot, but it is something that is being um, uh, becoming more, people are becoming more aware of to put on gloves with the fingertips that are exposed so that the, the least amount of skin possible gets exposed to the wow. ultraviolet radiation. That is so because interesting. It is hazardous. Th thank you for letting us know that. So we only have a minute or so left. Um, perhaps we can we can sum it up. What, what are the main points um, that uh, that you would uh, you would like us uh, to the t the great takeaway? And people should read the handbook, Surviving in a Germ-Filled World, because it's got some really interesting history also of how microbes were discovered in Pasteur, which I find fascinating. We can have that com We can continue to have that conversation uh, about, about all, of the, all, all of the great scientists who uh, helped us discover all of these. But the big takeaway, Dr. Dr. Worman, for our, our minute or so left. The big takeaway, first of all, in the handbook, um, everything you ever wanted to know about hand hygiene is in that book. <laughs> um, and also, if there's anyone who you love, they deserve that book because that will keep them healthier. But the main <laughs> points are we don't usually contract deadly diseases because of our natural barriers, our skin, our tears, saliva, right, our natural immunity, and our immune system. But it's inevitable that we're going to be exposed to germs. And some of them are hazardous, and some of them are even drug-resistant. And that's why you need to be vigilant about hand-washing and to be germ-aware. And the situation is complex, um, but it's very important to be educated about it so you can be discriminating about when to wash your hands and learn the science, which is very convincing. Uh, even skeptics can appreciate that getting sick, getting infectious diseases, um, that's that's certainly not what you want to do. Um, so and it's also very good to know about it because you can protect others who you love. People As well. who, um, you know, your children, and if you have um, you. loved ones who are in health care, you need to be their advocate and make sure their health care yep. workers are washing their hands and they're doing everything to keep them healthy. Thank you, Miriam. Thank you so much. We've been talking My with Mir pleasure. We've been talking with Miriam Warman, author of the handbook Surviving in a Germ-Filled World. 
Thank you so much, Professor Miriam Worman. You've given us a lot to ponder about such a simple but profound manner of trying to safeguard our health individually and in our communities and beyond. We do appreciate your taking the time to be with us on Healthy Options today. We'll have website information and more contact information on when we put this uh, up on the Public Affairs Archives at weru.org. In the meantime, if you've missed any part of this program or would like to share it, please go to weru.org. Org to find our recent programs on demand. Thanks to John uh, Greenman for engineering, to Petra Hall for production assistance, and always thanks to all of our WERU listeners and supporters. This is Rhonda Feynman wishing you the best in health. Democracy Now! produces a daily global independent news hour hosted by award-winning journalists Amy Goodman and Juan Gonzalez. Their reporting includes breaking daily news headlines and in-depth interviews with people on the front lines of the world's most pressing issues. On Democracy Now!, you'll hear diversity of voices speaking for themselves, providing a unique and sometimes provocative perspective on global events. Headlines at 8 o'clock Monday through Friday and Democracy Now! in its entirety at 5 p.m. Right here on Community Radio WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 in Bangor, and streaming worldwide at WERU.org. Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from Penobscot Bay Press, committed to providing community news.